Well, good evening, everyone. We're glad you're able to join us tonight. We have an exciting service in front of us. We have um, we have a report from the mission field from Peru, from Al Shannon, and we know that you'll enjoy that. Uh, we have a chance to celebrate tonight, 39 years, I believe it is, of, of ministry, and Dr. Jerry Wright's retirement as our organist, and so I trust that you will be joining us tonight with um, excitement, enjoying your heart as we look forward to some of those things. Uh, we're glad you're able to be with us. The reception for Dr. Jerry will be after the evening service tonight. Uh, so once we're done here, you'll go down to Fellowship Hall and you'll enjoy some time together down there and talking with him and greeting him. Uh, just a couple of other real quick announcements. You'll notice in your bulletin <clears throat> that there is an insert that has all of the special Christmas uh, services and events coming up. You'll want to take note of that. Make sure you have that. You could use that to give to somebody else or remind them of when things are, things are happening over the next month. Uh, also, Angel Tree signups are happening. I believe we have uh, 13 families left. I'm not sure if there's anybody in the Narthex. I don't see any shadows back there. Uh, but if not, make sure that you talk to Don DeBello or Chuck Boyer and uh, help out with that. Would you join me as we look to the Lord in prayer together? <clears throat> Father, it's with great anticipation that we enter this season of Advent not because we're looking forward to necessarily the, the commercialism of Christmas, but because we look forward to, to celebrating and remembering the Incarnation. We look forward to having our attention drawn over the next month to your great, deep love for us and the way that you demonstrated that to us by sending your Son, Jesus, by sending him to this planet, by sending him to us, being born of a babe, as a baby, that he might live a perfect, sinless life and die for us. He might shed his blood that we might have life when we place our faith in him. And so the season draws our attention to that and reminds us of, of that great love and the incarnation. And so we're thankful for that. As we continue to remember that this evening, as we worship, we ask that you would help us to turn our attention to you and to not allow it to be divided and distracted, that we might worship you well. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory, our Father. Amen. Well, it's the beginning of the Christmas season, so we need to sing some Christmas carols. Tonight we'll sing 131, 131 Angels from the Realms of Glory. It uh, kind of gives us a snapshot of the whole a Christmas story and then brings it back home. 131, please stand with me as we sing. Thank you. 
Jerry to come here, if he will, and join me. I have a presentation I would like to make to him, and we're going to do it down here because I don't want to have to get up on the platform twice tonight. Doctor, welcome. I'd like to, uh, if you want to turn around and face the folks here, because they came to see you, not me. So, um, Before I do the presentation and give to you an official certificate from the church, to which I'm indebted, Jude, Dave Peltz and Bill Harris for putting a lot of this together here. Uh, I want to say a few personal things. This is Dr. Jerry Wright, but I like to refer to him as Dr. J because I think he's as good or better in his field than the other Dr. J was in his field. And I can say that uh, having come here a couple of years after Jerry was here, that means that I have never been without him here at the church. And it's been a pleasure to have Jerry all the time knowing that whether it's a service, whether it's a funeral, whether it's a wedding, whatever it may be, that I can always count on him. And I was so much more relaxed with Jerry than any of the others that would be there, like at a funeral or wedding that somebody else would be supplying. Uh, Because Jerry and I have done a whole lot together, and we, we never did write our book. We were going to write a book. We had a lot of experiences. I think we've probably seen just about everything there was to see at a rehearsal or whatever it may be. But I do want to say this, that as over the years I've seen Jerry at work, I am not a great musician or music critic or anything along that line, but I, I happen to marry one. And I can remember so many times my wife saying to me, Jerry is absolutely a great accompanist. He will do whatever is necessary to help, in some cases, some of you have sung solos, and he's helped you as you've limped along through them. Uh, That's what a good accompanist does. On the heels of uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, in honor preferring one another to do what can be done to help the other person to be able to achieve what that other person needs to. So Jerry has done that, and over the years, I've learned to observe that after I was told to look for that, that He is constantly doing what he can do to help other people. And for that, 
I thank you personally, and we all do, because you've helped us to worship God by helping us to do the best that we can do as well. So thank you personally. And now I'd like to read what the official certificate from the church is. And I want you to be able to see this along with me. Certificate of Retirement, Alden Union Church, dated November 29th, 2015, honoring Dr. Jerry Wright. In grateful recognition of your service to the Lord and the congregation of Alden Union Church. Whereas Dr. Jerry Wright has retired as church organist of Alden Union Church on November 1st, 2015, the church congregation does hereby recognize you for your diligent service, steadfast dedication, and your devotion to the Lord for the past 39 years. Since 1976, you have shared your God-given musical talents to edify the body of Alden Union Church and glorify the Lord. Over those years, you have served 10 music directors, accompanied hundreds of soloists, and played over 4,000 services. Your dedication to serving the Lord has been proven by your remarkable attendance record, rarely if ever missing a service over more than 38 years. Therefore, the congregation of Alden Union Church expresses its collective sincere appreciation to Dr. Jerry Wright for your love and service to the Lord and to the congregation of Alden Union Church for these past 39 years. And there's a verse that appears, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. And we believe that embodies you from Ephesians 6, 7. Signed by William Ressler, the president of the Council of Elders, myself and William K. Pennington, the third president of the Board of Trustees. And on behalf of a grateful congregation, Dr. Jerry, congratulations. Thank you and God bless you. I promised Jerry that he wouldn't have to make a speech here tonight corporately, but he will be able to give very short speeches downstairs afterwards, and I'd love to encourage you to come and to let Jerry know how much he's loved. The only thing I would ask you to do, if everybody takes 10 minutes, do you realize how long Dr. Jerry would have to be down there? So be brief, but say what you you would like to say. And uh, we would like to say thank you individually as well as collectively. Thanks, Jerry. God bless. We have the, uh, the distinct uh, um, honor and privilege to be able to look at a missionary moment tonight. And this is Al and Barb Shannon. For the past 53 years, Al and Barbara Shannon have been missionaries to South America. They were commissioned in 1962 by Dr. William Dean and Alden Union Church to be missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators to the work in the country of Peru. For the first 47 years, they worked to help promoting the use of translated scriptures among 15 dialects of Quechua, the ancient language of the Incan, uh, of the Incan Empire. They spent most of their time in training Quechua leaders to produce audiovisual materials that would promote the use of the printed scriptures like 
Jesus, Genesis, and the Luke videos and other biblical materials. Through these efforts, interest in reading the Bible in Quechua was spreading all over the Andes Mountains. In 2008, Alan Barb retired from Wycliffe and felt called to work with the Quechua churches in Ayacucho, Peru, where there are over a million speakers and no media programs were yet in place to promote the use of the translated scriptures. As you'll see in the DVD to follow, there are now 30 promoters, those are people that actually uh, go out and then use these materials with the, uh, with the people in the countryside. Uh, 30 promoters trained and equipped using uh, visiting villages and promoting the use of the Ayacucho Quechua Bible. Thousands have come to Christ, hundreds of Bibles sold, and new churches have been formed where none have been before. So for the last seven years, Alan Barth have been officially retired, but they have been still, uh, their ministry continues to go on. They, they occasionally go down and visit, although that's uh, waning, but you'll see in, in this DVD the kind of impact that their ministry has had even in their retirement. In the state of Ayacucho, Peru, there are over one million Quechua speakers, a dialect of the ancient language of the Inca Empire. Most are poor farmers, barely making a subsistence living on the barren mountainsides of the Andes Mountains at 9,000 feet above sea level. Even though the Bible has been translated into their language, the majority of them do not know that it even exists, let alone be able to read it. All they have ever learned, they've learned by watching and listening. Since faith comes by hearing, the way of reaching them with the Word of God must be through audiovisuals. Barbara and I have been interested in this people group for many years and have seen them go through years of exploitation and terrorism with little hope for something better. Even though there have been efforts in bilingual education and literacy over the years, the majority still can't read. Another problem hindering Bible promotion has been the lack of cooperation between churches to work together and promote the use of the Bible among those who have never heard the Word of God in Quechua before. It was in 2008 that we met with a number of pastors from different denominations and churches in the area, and we told them how other Quechua groups were using radio programs, audio recordings of the scriptures, and biblical videos dubbed in the Quechua language to reach their people for the Word of God. They began to get excited and say, well, why can't we do that? And that's a good idea, but how do we do that? We told them if they would get together and form a Quechua association as an NGO, we would help them get resources and funding and training they needed. So out of that came Andean Ministries, which has grown since then to work with other organizations to produce a Quechua Bible Institute. Literacy materials, radio programs, 
scripture recordings and videos of Genesis and Luke, all in Ayacucho, Quechua. Three years ago, we had an audiovisual scripture workshop in Ayacucho, where we trained a number of Quechua leaders how to use the photo frame units and videos to evangelize and teach the word. Everson and Roxana really took to this ministry and would go for days out to isolated villages to witness to people and gather families in their homes to show the videos and minister to the people. They've seen such a hunger for the word and a need that they could never meet. They decided to make disciples to do what they were doing. Last year, they trained 12 more in the area of Wanton. This year, six more in their church. In 2011 and 2012, more audiovisual Bible promoters from Anyana were trained and equipped and sent out to evangelize and teach the Word using the 15-inch photo frame unit and the Luke and Genesis videos. It has been exciting to see how the people understand and respond to the gospel message when it is presented to them in an audiovisual format. When they see Jesus dressed like them, Talking to the people of his day and speaking Quechua, they are spellbound. After seeing the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they are weeping and crying out to him to save them, to help them, and to heal them. It is the most powerful tool I've ever seen for reaching the Quechua people. And with the lightweight portable photo frame unit and a small 12-volt battery, they can take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the Andes. God is good. And people who have never heard the gospel message before in their language are receiving the word gladly, and it is changing lives. And that's what it's all about. Good evening. I'm Todd Shaner. I'm on the Board of Trustees, and it's my pleasure to pray for the Dalavas tonight. Um, I'd also like to incorporate uh, Alan Barber Shannon in, uh, in my prayer, too. So before we do, let me introduce um, Sanjay and Karen Dalavai, if you don't know them. Uh, the two of them and their daughters, Faith, Grace, and Paige, are in India working for Life Change Ministries, and their mission is to help children see, know, and experience the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way. Let's take this to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening. I want to lift up the Shannons, Al and Barbara, in their wonderful work. You've given them a lifetime of serving you. Their passion truly comes through as they're working in retirement to continue to change the lives of the local people that they're living with. Lord, I just pray continued blessings on them and their ministry as they expand your word to all those people down there who have never heard it in their own language. Lord, tonight we also want to pray for the Dalavais in India. We offer you praise for the 30 camps they were able to conduct this year, the 1,800 children who attended them, and especially the 250 children and young adults who accepted Christ as their personal Savior through those camps. Lord, we also praise you for expanding their ministries into the into more states in North India and Nepal, previously unreached areas. 
And Lord, we bring before you a prayer that they have as, as they look to you to provide the additional 35% of financial support they need by the end of the year and offer you a praise that as of this past Wednesday, you've provided 11% and they still are looking for the, the other 24 and they put their hope and faith in you that it will come through, Lord. Sanjay is also looking for uh, a ministry assistant, and he's looking for you to provide that for him, Lord. We know you've blessed them, and you'll continue to bless them. Lord, I also want to lift up in this time all the world leaders, especially those who don't believe in Jesus Christ, that you'll send the Holy Spirit Spirit would come upon them and they would get to know and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior and change this world in the way never before seen. And Lord, now as we take up our offering, allow us to remember that everything we give, we give back to you. And it works through this church to honor and glorify you and allow that to continue, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I want to read a verse that uh, it actually appears in two Psalms, Psalms 42 and, and 3, 42 and 43, um, and you'll see this relates. It's a little refrain. It says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And we'll see a situation in David's life where he was cast down and in turmoil. Then the next part of it says, Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. That's a word of confidence. My salvation and my God. Um, a lot of times we face situations where we don't see how the solution can be good. And the psalmist says, hope in God. And he says, I know I'm going to be able to praise the Lord at the end of this. That when this is over, my God and my salvation is going to give me reason to praise him. And we're going to sing a song with you. You're going to sing it where we boast in the Lord, not because of what we're able to do, but because of the strength that he has in, in bringing us victory and salvation. And David will have experienced that as we'll see tonight. Would you stand? I will boast. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let the humble come and give thanks to the one who made us, the one who saved us. I will boast in the Lord my God. I will boast in the one who's worthy. I will boast in the Lord my God. I will boast in the one who's worthy. He's worthy. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let the humble come and give thanks. To the one who saved us, the one who saved us, I will boast in the Lord my God, I will boast in the one who's worthy, I will boast in the Lord my God, I will boast in the one who's worthy, I will boast in the Lord my God, I will boast in the
will boast in the Lord my God. I will boast in the one who is worthy. I will boast in the Lord my God. I will boast in the one who is worthy. I will boast in the Lord my God. I will boast in the one who is worthy. I will boast in the Lord my God. I will boast in the one who is worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. To be seated. Please join me for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can boast in you, and thank you that as we were seeing this morning, and we'll see again tonight, how it is that the hope of Israel, the hope of each one of us is in the Lord, and that's where our boast is. So we thank you for that, and thank you for being able to reinforce that with each one of us tonight. Again, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing on in our study of 1 Samuel, and we're almost finished the book of 1 Samuel. Tonight we come to chapter 30, and we're going to take a look at the first 20 verses, 1 Samuel chapter 30, and let's read them now. I'll read out loud if you follow along with me. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And here's the kind of the turning point of this whole episode, and a turning point that each one of us may need to come to from time to time, especially when trouble surrounds us. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor where they were left behind, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? 
He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my servant left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Some very interesting things as we read through that story, some very helpful things I trust for each one of us. Once again, as we saw this morning, here is an individual in a hopeless situation. The way David reacted and the people that were with him reacted, it was as if this was the worst possible outcome that could have ever happened to them. And so they wept until they had no strength to weep any longer. Well, I've spoken with a number of people over the years who've placed themselves on a path that is leading them to destruction. It's only a matter of time. It's very predictable. I've spoken with them. I've heard the path that they're on. I know the trouble that they've been in, and they've shared that with me openly over a period of many, many years. But it's leading them to destruction. And again, it's only a matter of time before something worse happens. A lot of times it's involved drugs. Sometimes it's involved alcohol. Sometimes it involves a godless group of friends or maybe even one special friend. Sometimes it's any combination of what I've just said already. And it may involve the combination of alcohol and drugs, and sometimes it's alcohol and drugs, and sometimes it's with the friends and everybody else there. But it can involve other things as well. Anything that is a violation of God's will and word can lead to destruction. I sometimes tell people that even though I'm not a prophet, I can predict what they will be like in five years or ten years unless they stop doing what they presently are doing. I can remember vividly one young man, I visited him in the hospital, and I told him, I said that in five years, this is what you're going to be like if you don't stop this lifestyle, if you don't stop doing what you're doing. Five years later, I visited him in prison, which is something I had predicted where he would be at that time, and even why he would be there for that. And for um, that particular time period, I said to him, do you know what? You can stop this at any time. I don't know what became of that young man, but there are many others who are like him, some of whom I do know what happened to them. Quite often, I visit with these folks during a minor crisis time. By minor, maybe to some of us it would be very, very major, but it's minor in comparison with what's going to happen to them later uh, because some things are going to be very, very terrible that happen to them in the future. 
Sometimes this minor crisis time might be a disappointed spouse reacting with anger, and maybe the marriage seems like it could be in some trouble. Sometimes I visit these folks in the hospital as I did this one individual after a scare that they've had. Sometimes it's trouble with the police. Sometimes it's emotional problems. But ultimately, many of them recover, but then they go on just as before. They haven't learned a lesson at all. They just keep doing it. I've concluded that a high percentage of these folks will only come back to the Lord when they hit rock bottom. And what a pity that is. They'll only come back. They'll only make some changes that they needed to make a long time ago. They'll only do it when they hit rock bottom, if they even do it then. Because a lot of them won't even do it when they hit rock bottom. You can define rock bottom any way that you want to, but uh, we could always say, well, it could be worse. Well, maybe it could be, but there are some situations where in your life right now, maybe some of you are close to rock bottom. Maybe you're halfway there. The point is not how we define rock bottom. The point is how we stop that skid wherever it happens to be right now, that downward spiral. How do we stop that? Ultimately, what happens is that things get worse and worse, and rock bottom for some of them looks like the marriage now has fallen totally apart. When the jail sentence is unusually strict, they can't sweet-talk their way out of it anymore. When they've rotted their lungs or their liver or their heart beyond anything but, uh, but sympathetic frowns from their doctors, that often is rock bottom. When they drunkenly beat their wives, when they turn their cars into murder weapons, when they destroy their family's dignity and self-worth, or when they've tried everything and nothing seems to work. When they hit rock bottom, they want real help, not just Band-Aids. They're content with Band-Aids up to that point. And yet at the same time, I'm really not committed to rock bottom work with individuals. I'm committed to a ministry of prevention. And so is the Bible. No one needs to have to hit rock bottom to know if they're on the wrong path. They know it a long time before that. And this is the time to respond. God's given us examples in his word to warn us, to help us to see real people experience all the unnecessary pain and tragedy that goes along with disobedience. And God has shown us how it's happened to other people so we don't have to go through it. So we don't have to learn lessons the hard way. So we see how others have maligned the name of God. They've dragged him in disgrace before a cynical world. We don't have to do that either. David hit a rock bottom in 1 Samuel chapter 30. He hadn't learned what God was teaching him with easier-to-swallow pills. Now he needed the bitter one. Of course, in God's mercy, it could have been a lot worse. But David didn't know it at the time. David didn't know it at the beginning of what is recorded here in this chapter. His whole world, it seemed, had been torn away from him, including his family, his possessions, everything that he had was now gone as far as he was concerned. So let's examine it a little bit closer as we see David's trouble. David's trouble in the first six verses. If you glance at those six verses again with me, the question that I can ask is, why did he have such trouble? Do you remember 
that he was in the wrong place? Do you remember? I know it's been a while because we've had some things between times. But he had chosen to live with and pretend to be sympathetic to the Philistines because he was tired of running in fear from Saul. To do this, he had to lead a life of self-deception. He wasn't depending on the Lord anymore, but on duplicity. I'm not seeming to have this work right now, and I'd hate to have the alcohol and drugs on the screen, the whole message. So I might just leave that, and we'll go on without, we'll go out on without the slides. But why did he have that kind of trouble? Let's look at chapter 27, back a few chapters. First Samuel 27, just to review, take us back to where we have been. Then David said in his heart, this is verse 1, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now that's what David's plan was. David's plan was, I can't keep running from Saul forever. Why don't I go to the Philistines? I'll be safe. He won't follow me there. But that was not what God had told him. God didn't want him with the enemy. God wanted him to be there in his own land. And we had seen that before in the scriptures where he had been told to stay right where he was. First Samuel chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 27, now verse 11. In verse 11, Achish was questioning David about some of the things that he was doing. And David was lying about who it was that he had just gone on his own raid with. And it says, And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, that is to King Achish, because he was deceiving him this whole time, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. That was a year and four months, we know. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. So here was David living a life of deception in a place where he should not be. And it's going to get worse. David had been living that life for over the year. He'd been given a long time in which to recognize that what he was doing was wrong, even if it did seem to work. It relieved him from the constant pressure of Saul's pursuit. But he was out of God's will. And soon he would be so callous that it wouldn't matter. Something drastic needed to be done, and that's why God did something drastic. David's deception would continue. Look at chapter 29 now in verse 3. Chapter 29, verse 3 and talks about Achish. This is a situation where they believed, David believed that he was going to go fight against his own people. King Achish had recruited him. And it says, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Now, that's something that's very, very interesting. As the deception continues, he had Achish hoodwinked. Achish found no fault in David. He didn't realize he was lying to him and raiding those people that the Philistines would have not have been happy with. 
David kept lying and saying that he was raiding people that would make him a stench to the people of Israel. In chapter 29, verse 6, David was categorized there as honest in the ESV or reliable in other translations. Achish found nothing wrong with him. In chapter 29, verse 9, he was as blameless or pleasing in the eyes of Achish as an angel of God. And so we see the deception continues. He's very good at it. He's where he should not be, and he's getting worse and worse in his deception. Maybe there are some here tonight that are living a lie. You may look good also, but you and the Lord know what you really look like inside. And it's to you and to the rest of us who don't want to be there that I'm speaking. To be living that kind of a lie, to be deceiving, to be out of God's will, and yet make it look like I'm doing everything that I should be doing correctly. And David made it still worse. You look at chapter 29 now and verse 8. Chapter 29, verse 8. And what we see here, after David was finally told that he could not accompany Achish and the Philistines in the battle against his own people, Israel, that was David's out because David was really caught in a quandary. David was caught because he was going to have to go and either show himself to be a defector from the Philistines or fight against his own people and the Lord's anointed, which he couldn't do. So he had painted himself into a corner. He was given an out. He was told that the officials of the Philistines did not want him to go, so he had to go back to where he was living. So what did David do? Verse 8, And David said to Achish, But what have I done? In other words, what did I do wrong? Why can't I go and fight with you? Why can't I show you how loyal I am to you? What have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King? And it's after that that Achish said to him how blameless he was, but he still had to go back. So David now digging a deeper hole for himself, even when God gave him a way out. God had rescued him from an impossible situation, but the deception continued. But that was it. That was the last straw, because now God would act decisively. There would come a definite transition in the way God will deal with the child of his continuing in sin. It cannot go on indefinitely. David had been delivered from a problem, but he had not yet come back to God. And sometimes God gets our attention through displays of mercy. And sometimes he brings the rod of discipline hard on us where it hurts. Some of you right now may be experiencing or having experienced God's mercy to the point that some of us say, how can you keep expecting God's mercy? How can you expect him to not come down on you very, very hard? But he will do that. The timing is up to him. But if God doesn't get our attention one way, then he will try to get it another way. And that's exactly what happens to David here. I ask a question, is it possible that you are heading for trouble? Is it possible that you're on that downward slope? Because if you misread God's blessing in your life as a sign of God's inattention or even his approval of what you're doing, that would be a big mistake. Don't take advantage of his grace. 
Don't think, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but so far I've gotten away with it, so I'm going to continue to do it. That's a big, big mistake. Something significant here is that the Amalekites owed big-time paybacks to David. We won't take time to go to 1 Samuel chapter 27, but in chapter 27, verses 8 and 9, this was when David came and annihilated some of the Amalekite settlements. And they would love nothing better than to pay him back, and they had a chance to do that because Ziklag was the place where David lived. Remember earlier, David had gone to King Achish and said to him, we shouldn't be living around here where you are. We don't deserve to live here. Can you give us a town? And he did that. He gave them the town of Ziklag. This was David's home. This was where all of David's people lived and where they stayed. It was not a Philistine place any longer. And so we've got a situation now where Ziklag was burned to the ground. Now think about that. The place where David now lived burned to the ground. I don't know how many possessions he was able to accumulate, but whatever it was, they were gone now. His house, no doubt, probably his favorite chair, his paintings on the wall, his baseball card collection, his wedding presents. Remember, he had at least a couple of weddings at this point, so he had lots of presents. All of these were gone. All of the women and children and others who hadn't gone with David to be with the Philistine army were missing and presumed dead. Actually, they'd been carried away, but David didn't know that at this particular point. These that he loved most in all the planet were probably being paraded in humiliating triumph right now. Possibly they would be sold, perhaps to be slaves or even worse. So here's David, not knowing even that they're alive But if they are alive, it was not a good situation for them. But as it turns out, no one was killed. David had no right to expect that. But how could he even expect the Amalekites to be more merciful than he was? He killed all of their settlements, the people there. But the Amalekites hadn't killed any of his people. Why is that? I believe because even in his wrath, we're told in Habakkuk that God remembers mercy. God is merciful to David even through this situation. God certainly gets his attention, but his mercy is still there. This led to great mourning on David's part. You saw that in verses 4 and 5, David and his men. David was personally affected because it affected two of his wives. Again, it tells us they wept until they had no more strength left to weep. Now there's more trouble for David. He had double trouble. Because now they were holding him responsible for everything that had happened. This tragedy that was there, remember how his loving, devoted, loyal, faithful men were to him? Now they wanted to stone him. This is really at the very bottom for David because he has all of those losses and even his faithful men now want to stone him. Those who would have done anything for him now are blaming him for this tragedy. Rock bottom? It would seem so. David was separated from God. He was devastated at the loss of his family. He was about to be stoned by his friends. He was homeless and without any possessions, all of which were part of a loving God's plan to bring him back to where he needed to be. And how unnecessary for God to have to do that to us when along the way there are so many warnings there is his word for us to learn from. We mentioned earlier 
David's turning point. David's turning point we see in verse 6, the end of the verse, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What significant words they are. It doesn't tell us exactly what that means. What did he do? He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I don't believe that I'm reading too much into it in assuming some things here. Assuming sorrow for sin. Assuming confession. Repentance. The fruit of repentance. Because if he strengthened himself in the Lord, he would go to the Lord on the Lord's terms, not on his own. And the Lord's terms are always that we come that way. By confessing the sin, forsaking the sin. By dealing with it the way God wants us to deal with it. The way that it says in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And we know in First John chapter one verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And later it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when it says David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, I believe that at the very least that meant that he came to the Lord, he communicated with him, and he came God's way, and he had to come by way of repentance and confession. So David learned the hard way that his plan for safety wasn't good enough. He was safe from Saul, but catch the irony here, his closest friends were about to kill him. You see the irony there? Yes, he was safe from Saul, but now look at the mess he was in because he decided that his will was better than God's will. I think we all understand there's no safety outside the will of God. David should have looked for God's protection, not the protection of the Philistines. Finally, David sought guidance and direction from God. Here's what he did. Abiathar brought the ephod containing the Urim and the Thummim. David asked the Lord two questions. He said, should I pursue after this band and shall I overtake them? And God gave him three answers. thought this is very interesting. He asked two questions. One of them, should I pursue after this band? And God said, pursue. Shall I overtake them? And God said, for you shall surely overtake. And then God added this, and shall surely rescue. God went beyond David's questions, gave him greater confidence in the outcome, not just the fact of confrontation. David wanted to know, shall I go after them and will I catch up to them? And God said, yes, you should, and yes, you will catch up to them, but here's one better. You're also going to rescue all of the people that were taken. David's triumph in verses 9 through 20, and you're thinking, wow, it's after 7.30, and he's not even halfway through the chapter Uh, But it's self-explanatory. David's triumph is very clear. We see the pursuit in verses 9 through 15. 600 men started off in pursuit of the Amalekites and everybody and everything that they had taken with them. 200 men were too exhausted to cross the Bezor Brook and stayed behind. We read where they found an Egyptian slave who until recently had been serving the Amalekites. They gave him food and water. It was the first time after three days and three nights. That's why as we're reading the story, we wonder, why are they feeding this guy? Then we find out he hadn't had anything to eat. He wasn't going to be able to give a report. He was probably so weak that he could barely speak, if at all. It tells us he ate and was revived. 
He told his story and agreed to lead them to the Amalekites' raiding band in exchange for his life and his liberty. And then came the rescue. The rescue in verses 16 through 20. The Amalekites were sitting ducks. Why? It appears as if they were boasting in something other than the Lord. They had this great victory. They were partying. They were reveling in it. It tells us that they were eating and drinking and dancing. A great celebration was going on as to their prowess and everything that they had been able to do. But now David and his men defying numerical odds. We assume there were a lot more Amalekites than there were 400 men with David because it said they were spread over all the land. That could have meant that they were spread out a lot or there could have been a lot of them. And I tend to believe that it it was probably both at the same time. It was a long battle won by David. Everything and everyone was recovered And David brought back everything, and the people were now ready to reward him. That's mercy and grace at the same time. Do you see how David's troubles were turned to triumph? How did it all happen? David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. He came back to where he needed to be, to God. It's mercy and grace. It's what happens when someone strengthens himself in the Lord. Four quick lessons. Beware of the effects of self-pity. Beware of the effects of self-pity. This is what started David in the middle of his trouble when David was saying, I'm never going to get away from Saul. I'm going to be running my whole life. I've got to figure out a better plan. What God has me in right now isn't working, so I'm going to do my own thing. Beware of the effects of self-pity, especially when its source is rejection. And here is David in a situation where he's been rejected by Saul and he's feeling the effects of self-pity. It leads to self-centered decisions that become disasters. That started the snowball rolling down the hill for David. Secondly, beware of losing perspective on God's plan for your life. How do you lose perspective on God's plan for your life? by counting up the troubles that you happen to be in or the circumstances you don't like at any given time. Think long range. There will be periods of confusion and darkness in your life. That's not the time to go out and get drunk. That's the time to realize that God has this in my life for a purpose. I am going to seek His purpose in this and not go my own way and do my own thing. Don't think the present is all there is. Third lesson, it's never too late to turn back to God. And please hear me on this. It's never too early either. Don't wait to hit rock bottom. It's never too late, never too early. The time is now to turn back to God. And finally, beware the long-range effects of sin. Beware the long-range effects of sin. Looking into the distance and say, this is what's going to happen if I continue in the way that I'm going. I'm going to close with one story. When Leonardo da Vinci was painting his masterpiece, The Last Supper, we're told that he spent a long time searching for a man he could use as a model for his portrait of the Lord Jesus. At last, Leonardo's eyes fell on a young man who sang in the choir of one of Rome's churches. The young man was strikingly, and they used the word beautiful, in his physical appearance. He also had a pure and blameless character and life. His name was Pietro Bandinelli. 
So the great artist hired him, and Pietro Bandinelli became Leonardo's model for his portrait of the Lord Jesus. Years passed. Still, the Last Supper was not completed. Leonardo had now painted all the disciples of Christ except one, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed his master. So Leonardo now began the thankless task of searching for a man who could act as a model for his portrait of Judas. He needed to find someone whose face was hardened and disturbed by evil, a sort of living human devil. At last, as Leonardo walked down the streets of Rome, his eyes fell on a certain beggar. This man's face was so full of evil, so inhuman and disturbed with diabolical malice, that merely gazing at him made Leonardo shudder. Still, this was what Leonardo had been looking for. So the great artist approached the beggar, hired him, and had him sit in his studio as a model. Leonardo painted his portrait of Judas Iscariot, thus completing the Last Supper. When he had finished, Leonardo paid the beggar and was about to send him away when he remembered something and stopped. By the way, the artist said, I never did get your name. Who are you? The beggar looked at Leonardo with his evil face and eyes and replied, Don't you recognize me? I am the man who sat for your portrait of Christ. My name is Pietro Bandinelli. Beware the long-range effects of sin. Now, I do need to tell you this. At least one truth website doubts that this really happened, this story. It is told many times in many places, but you can think of this as a parable if you like, but the truth of the matter is there. Beware of the long-range effects of sin and deal with any sin right now before the long-range even comes into view. A lesson from the life of David. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you grant to us Examples from your word, just like you said, so that we can have hope. We read it this morning once again. We can have hope because we see the way your grace and your mercy acts in people's lives, even when they've done things that have been very, very wrong. You get our attention. Sometimes that attention is gotten by severe discipline. We don't want to be there. We don't want anybody here to be there. So help us to have very, very short accounts with sin and to deal with it the way you want us to. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, we're very, very grateful for Dr. Jerry, and we have the chance to tell him that downstairs. Let's stand up and sing the confidence we have knowing the Lord fights our battles for us when we turn to him. I know who goes before me, I know who 
stands behind the God of angel armies is always by my side the one who reigns forever he is a friend of mine the God of angel armies is always by my side my strength is in Father, we thank you that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you so very, very much. We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your grace. You keep giving it to us. And yet, we have to be careful not to flaunt it. We don't want to take advantage of it, so help us to live wisely. And thank you for the celebration that we can have as a church family now. Thank you for the food that's ready for us. 
And thank you again for Dr. Jerry and may each of us who have the opportunity to speak with him be an encouragement to him and express our gratitude for all that he's done on your behalf and for ours. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.